Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolfaw, and we've got a great show for you today. But first, a couple of announcements. I am looking for our first ever ACRAC intern. Now, this is unfortunately an unpaid internship, but it will be an opportunity to be really involved with the making of ACRAC and all that goes into it. A chance to work closely with me. Now, granted, that could be a pro or a con of this deal uh, that will have to be determined over time. A chance to get a great letter of recommendation and a chance to do some really fun stuff as we continue to innovate here at ACRAC. So if you're interested, uh, and I am looking for somebody with some tech uh, background, uh, some ability to do IT and media stuff, uh, like, for example, potentially managing the ACRAC Twitter account, that kind of stuff, um, something I am not skilled at, uh, but would love to have someone who is involved. So if you are interested in potentially being the first ever ACRAC intern, please send me your CV and a less than one page, 12-point font, none of this, you know, four-point font to try to fit more in, but less than one page, just a couple paragraphs, description of why you think you would be the one to be the first ACRAC intern, and send it to ACRAC at ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C at A-C-C-R-A-C.com. And uh, I will look through what comes in, and we'll go from there. I am also considering redoing the logo for ACRAC. And if you have any talent in the logo creation world and would like to submit a potential design for a new ACRAC logo, send it also to ACRAC at ACRAC.com. Now, again, I can't pay you for the logo, but of course, you'll get credit if yours is chosen and a thank you in the credits of ACRAC at each and every episode. If you have that talent, if you're interested, send it along, and uh, we will choose one to be the new ACRAC logo if we decide to make a change. Regular listeners uh, will may have noticed that uh, I have changed the logo uh, by adding some color, uh, but I've been encouraged also to consider other options for the actual logo itself, hence this call for proposals. All right, without further ado, let's get started because we are ready to go. And I've got a really interesting show for you today. I'm excited to have with me via the internet, Dr. Ashish Khanna, who is an associate professor of anesthesiology at Wake Forest. And he is a critical care anesthesiologist and the lead author of a really interesting trial called the Prodigy Trial, which we'll talk about. Uh, but I think this is going to be very interesting. And Ashish, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Jed. Um, <clears throat> and, and hello, everyone. I'm excited to be here. So... Let's jump in and talk a little bit about you first. Tell me, uh, Ashish, about your practice. What does it consist of? And uh, how did you get interested in the subject of this trial, which is opioid-induced respiratory depression? Yes, I'd be glad to. So <clears throat> I practice um, as a critical care anesthesiologist. In fact, I have practiced um, more critical care than um, anesthesiology per se. Um, I <clears throat> I did my initial uh, residency and fellowship training at um, uh, Cleveland Clinic. And and then, uh, you know, I was very heavily engaged in the clinical practice of uh, critical care. And the the reason I got interested in, in more of the perioperative space was because um, I, I began to realize that it is the the rapid response calls and the problems on the general care floor 
that affect us as intensivists because of the downstream effects of unwanted or unnecessary ICU admissions. Um, <clears throat> we all know that the intraoperative uh, period is very, very, very safe now. And with the advancements in modern-day anesthesia, uh, intraoperative mortality is, um, is, is so few and far between that it's very difficult to even quantitate it. However, yeah. uh, post-operative mortality is still common or at least a hundred times more common than intraoperative mortality. Right. And I got interested as a direct continuum of the anesthesia critical care space because I, I, I was part of the rapid response service and I understood that patients, you know, are, are having all of these acute events on the general care floor. Uh, we don't know half of the time why these events happen. We, we are left to speculate. And then we receive these admissions in the middle of the night in the ICU. And we have to deal with all of those, all of the downstream effects and all of the resource utilization problems. And I felt that there, there was a need to tap into all of the big data that was being generated outside of the ICU to really construct a... A, a system of monitoring and a model that would allow our rapid response teams to be more effective and be more proactive in their intervention versus being more of a retroactive system as we have in place in most institutions in this country. So that, that is truly what got me interested. So to answer your question, it was not just opioid-induced respiratory depression, but it was the fact that Respiratory depression or acute cardiorespiratory events were common on the general care floor. Um, and, you know, I can talk about some of the data afterwards, but what my initial clinical investigative work had uncovered that most of these, <clears throat> most of hypoxemia on the general care floor was, was common, was nearly impossible to predict using uh, currently available, well-validated screening tools. And, and, and that led me to the next question. Well, if it's so difficult to predict and so common, what can we do? Can we do better surveillance of our patients? And that's what really got me interested into building things like the, like, like the Prodigy trial, for example, that I'll talk about later. Yeah, great. So can you give me a little bit of... Um you know, as you said, the data on like, what are we talking about here? What is the uh, mor morbidity and mortality associated with these post-operative um, respiratory and cardiac events? Yeah, so th this this data is, is exciting and, 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 and shocking at, at the same time. So <clears throat> in general, um, an interesting way to look at 30-day post-operative mortality is that if we if we classified this as a disease process in itself, it would be the third most common cause of mortality in the United States of America, only after diseases of the heart and cancer. So the third most common overall cause of mortality in the USA, if you classified 30-day postoperative mortality as a disease entity. Now, in terms of uh, sheer uh, numbers, there is a uh, <clears throat> group of investigators in a registry called the Get With The Guidelines Registry. Uh, a lot of institutions report their acute events from the general care floor to the Get With The Guidelines Registry. This registry uh, published several series of uh, um, really important uh, papers over the last 10 years or so. 
And what they have shown is that uh, acute cardiorespiratory events happen commonly to the tune of many thousands of events. More than, for example, more than 40,000 um, index events were uh, estimated in the year 2012, just as an example. And when these events happen, their mortality is to the tune of 40% or more. So nearly half of the patients who have a acute decompensation on the general care floor will end up dying. Now, this data is, is, uh, is, like I said, shocking, surprising, whatever you might call it. And then it also begs the question, you know, if, if, if we have this data in front of us, what are we doing about it? Yeah. Um, and, and clearly, uh, much more needs to be done if we really have to make a difference in this space. Yeah, that is shocking. So 40% uh, is is an incredibly high number. And these are people who are these de- de- people dying in the hospital or is yeah. it long term? That's all in hospital mortality. Then. Well, OK, so obviously a real need, as you said, to think about this and how we can do better. So that led you to, uh, you know, designing the Prodigy trial. So uh, what does Prodigy stand for? It's a great name. What does it stand for? Thank you. Well, Prodigy stands for the prediction of opioid-induced respiratory depression in patients monitored by capnography. And the real uh, lead-up to Prodigy was uh, several series of uh, papers or work that had been published by the um, Outcomes Research Group uh, at Cleveland Clinic. Uh, the the first one was the uh, post-operative hypoxemia after non-cardiac surgery, where uh, folks were monitored with continuous blinded pulse oximetry monitoring after non-cardiac surgery. And what was seen was that nearly 90% of hypoxemic events to the tune of oxygen saturation less than 90% for one hour or more of monitoring time was missed based on standard uh, every four-hour vital size checks on the general care floor. Um, So hypoxemia was common in the post-operative period. And then I did some work where I looked at the predictability of the stop-bank scoring system in an effort to to say whether a higher uh, stop-bank score would be associated with more post-operative hypoxemia. I also investigated the role of narcotics and opioids and and attempted to see the association between long and short-acting opioids and post-operative hypoxemia. Um, And again, surprisingly, I found no association whatsoever, either with stop-bank scores or with, uh, with the type of opioid used, at least as far as hypoxemia occurrence was concerned. Um, this bothered me, and uh, I, I often ask myself the question, like I just said, if, if, if postoperative respiratory depression, at least with hypoxemia, is that common, um, you know, I'm sure it is even more common if we measure things like hypoventilation, low respiratory rate, and or heart rate or, or blood pressure changes. So why aren't we measuring these things more commonly on the general care floor? What are we missing and and what can we do? So, right. So we designed Prodigy, and Prodigy, in, in, in again, <clears throat> in full disclosure, is a um, trial that is funded by Medtronic, um, and 
we had a trial steering committee composed of three members. It was myself, um, Dr. Frank Overdyke, and uh, Professor Wolfgang Bure. Um, Professor Bure is based out of Netherlands. Uh, Frank Overdyke is based out of South Carolina. Um, and we got together and we constructed a protocol where we monitored, where we wanted to monitor patients on the general care floor who would receive parenteral opioids. Now, parenteral meaning either IV or epidural opioids. And these patients would be monitored again using blinded and silenced, alarm silenced monitoring. Whereas standard protocol based every four to six hours monitoring would continue, would continue um, per hospital policy. Um, the, just going, just going back for, for, for one second, the whole issue, as, as you can see, is monitoring. So what we're doing traditionally in hospital systems, not only in the United States, but mostly in most parts of the world, is that if you are a patient on the general care floor, you are being monitored in snapshots of time. Every four to six hours, a healthcare provider is going to come into your room, check on you, your neurological status your blood pressure, your heart rate, your respiratory rate, your temperature, amongst other things. And, you know, put them down, document them somewhere and go away. And that leaves you with high, with, with these big, uh, you know, chunks of time where you're essentially not being watched. Um, we know that code blue events don't happen out of the blue. We know that there is at least a six to 12 hours period of, um, subtle changes in vital signs that happens before a code blue event actually occurs. So when we're monitoring in these snapshots of time every four to six hours, we're in a sense missing all of these subtle changes in pattern detection and we're missing an, an opportunity or a window to intervene. And because we're missing all of that, our patients then present themselves with sudden cardiorespiratory arrests and, and then our rapid response teams come running most of the time, it's it's too late to do anything whatsoever. So uh, that that is that is the whole uh, basis of Prodigy to say continuous monitoring derived data to enable us to develop a risk prediction tool that will allow us to say these are the patients that need proactive therapeutic interventions and more uh, continuous surveillance. My ultimate aim or my vision is that everyone who walks through a hospital system will have some kind of portable continuous monitor attached to them. And there will be uh, a day where I'll be able to continuously monitor everyone to ensure everyone's patient say, uh, safe uh, passage through a hospital. Um, I'd say that's, that's a few years away, but this is, you know, the long and short of why Prodigy was initiated. Right. And so that, you know, obviously, if we get to a point where everyone's monitored, that's fantastic. But uh, I think your goal is if we can develop a risk prediction tool, then at least we know if not everyone's going to be monitored, we can know who the most high risk people are and maybe they would need a little extra monitoring. Is that right? That is correct. All right. Now, one thing that I, I think is interesting, you know, when you put monitors on people, you see all these events, right? And do we have any idea, uh, you know, if you monitored someone at home who wasn't uh, post-op, you know, if you just put the monitor on someone at home for a week, would people have, I mean, do we think these are unique events to the post-operative period or is it possible these things happen 
you know, to people just on a daily basis at night, we just don't know because we're not, we're not watching. That's a great question, Jed. So, uh, I believe that these events are not entirely unique. So I am sure that patients who have, for example, obstructive sleep apnea, when they go to sleep at home, often go into apneic pauses. Um, often, you know, their O2 sat would probably drop if we were to monitor it. Now, the issue, the big difference is that at home, they are not under conditions of the same cardiorespiratory stress as they are when they're recovering from a big surgery. And, right. and that is the that is the difference. At home, the, their systems are not being stressed. They're, they're going through, you know, their whatever cyclical hypoxemic uh, changes or apneic pauses or someone probably has uh, beta blockers and occasionally gets bradycardic to 50, but they're not recovering from a huge uh, belly surgery, for example. When they do that, after they've taken five hours of surgery and uh, a liter of blood loss and now have pain, the need for narcotics, or they're going through other sympathetic stimulation postoperatively and then have the same changes, um, those changes are, are only amplified. And their bodies don't have the, the reserve, the physiological reserve to then deal with what was normal episodes at home, which would now for sure turn into um, problems for them postoperatively. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so I think big things being, like you said, the, the stress of the kind of situation after surgery. And then, of course, the fact that presumably most people... Uh, are not taking uh, the opioids that they're taking immediately after surgery when they get home, at least not to the same extent or the same doses, and especially not in combination with the immediate stress of anesthesia and surgery. Yep. So uh, this was an enormous trial, 16 sites across three continents, North America, Europe, and Asia. Uh, it must have been an enormous undertaking. And I just wonder if you could say a few words, uh, if anyone out there is listening who's interested in getting involved in this kind of uh, work at some point in their careers, you know, how, what kind, what does it take to run a, a trial of this size? Yeah, so uh, clinical trials are not easy. You know, um, uh, an interesting side point is that, you know, uh, we often sit at journal clubs and meetings and we pick up a paper and we're like, oh, you know, these are 10 big problems with this work and that's not right. This is not right. And I wonder how these guys got this published. I have to say that any clinical trial consumes a certain portion of a trialist lifespan uh, and not just in thinking about designing it, but executing it and then, and then, and then turning it into something that makes a difference. Um, to, to run a trial across three continents, um, again, like I said, full disclosure, um, this was an industry sponsored trial. So a lot of, you know, the background work is driven by resources provided by industry. But having said that, you know, the first, for the first task at hand was for, for us to design a protocol keeping in mind not just the working conditions in hospitals in, in, in USA, but also in different places in Europe and in Asia. Understanding that what continuous, what monitoring standards are currently uh, uh, out there in Europe, what monitoring standards are there in Asia, um, 
uh, how commonly are opioids used in in Europe, Asia, and the U.S.? What is the patient population we're looking at? How common are these events? Is this even a concern in Asia? I, and and we had to get several people together to sit in and weigh in and look at our protocol and say, hey, you know, this won't work for Asia or this won't work for a, a, a hospital in France that, that keeps its patients in the post-anesthesia care unit for 24 hours as a routine after surgery. Mm, interesting. You know, we had to go through all of those intricacies, still have one universal protocol that was acceptable to different cultural medical practices. Then the implementation means that every site has to make sure that the site has, you know, well equipped with research fellows, nurses, um, you know, that the monitors themselves are acceptable to the patients who are going to wear them, that their surgeons and and and, and medical doctors are in tune with the trial, that their uh, bedside nurses on the general care floor are are going to work with them on this uh, on this trial and 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 again the blinding of the monitors was another um, touchy issue because you know several IRBs would say well that's a your that's a safety issue um, although our argument was that you know continuous monitoring is not yet a gold standard so we're not disturbing. Um, standard protocol-based monitoring, uh, allowing that to go on. But even then, that did mean some extra explaining to do uh, for most IRBs that that read this protocol. So uh, these are just some of the layers of challenges. And then, you know, finally speaking, it's it's also uh, very challenging to keep patients uh, on a continuous monitor. Um, you know, we we have seen this in the past uh, in our early work, and we saw this again this time, that patients don't like to be tethered to a hospital bed, um, especially post-op day one, when, they, when, they're, when you're encouraging them, on the one hand, to mobilize themselves, to walk around, you know, to, to, to go sit out of bed in a chair, they don't like to be hooked up to to wires and cables and a and a, and a box and something in their nose. They hate it, and right. and and that's my message actually to anyone who's wanting to design a continuous monitoring trial or work in this space. The smaller your monitor will be, the more portable it will be, the more acceptable it will be to a patient because uh, patients are not. They, if you ask an average patient how he or she feels about a nasal cannula with oxygen blowing into it through the nose, the most of them would say they hate it. And that, again, is our only measure of entitled CO2 here. So we need, we need to do more work with our colleagues in engineering to design monitoring systems that will be acceptable for patients. If you really have to get, have our patients understand the value of continuous monitoring. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I am curious, you mentioned, you know, the difference or the, that you wondered if there'd be a difference. And what did you find in terms of Europe and Asia? Do, are, do these events happen just as often in, in the other uh, countries and continents as they do in the United States? Or is there a difference? <clears throat> so um, just speaking to the results. So we initially uh, screened nearly 2000 patients. Our final cohort was 1336 patients who completed monitoring and received opioids on the general care floor. Now, we're still parsing through 
all of the data in terms of, you know, to uh, in terms of were these events more common in Asia, Europe, or the United States of America, just uh, a 30,000 foot view is that these events were more common in, in USA. But that's also because most of patient recruitment also happened in USA. So there's more sites in USA than in Europe and then in Asia. Um, okay. Um, but so what I will say is, is that the demographic profile was very, very different. So as expected, for good or bad, uh, folks in America were were on the heavier side, higher BMIs, higher neck circumferences, uh, and and higher stop bank scores in general, compared to Europe and then Asia, which had the leanest population, so so to speak. Um, Opioid use, again, um, this is, I don't know, something to be proud of or not, but again, um, we had uh, about 70% patients uh, who were not opioid naive, which meant that they had already received opioids in one form, shape, or the other at some stage in their in their lives. Whereas the Asian population, uh, close to 96%, was all opioid naive. So, um, you know, that, that, that's, and that's to be expected. Um, we know that opioids are still the mainstay of uh, post-operative pain relief in the Americas, whereas in Asia, uh, for one reason or the other, um, non-narcotics are good enough for post-operative pain relief. Uh, right. The, and, and these were some of the uh, broad demographic differences that, that we, that we, that we saw and that, the, that would be part of our table one, so, so to speak. We also saw that patients in America were sicker. There were more ASA threes and fours that were being operated on in America. Um, and a slightly older patient population in America as well. Um, the interesting part to that is going to be the some of the post hoc analyses that are going to come out of this are going to look at uh, whether your genetic makeup or 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 where you are being treated for in the post operative period or the medical period makes a difference in in these events and your behavior to to opioids now that that's interesting so if you and I go to to a hospital, for example, in Singapore, will we have less events compared to a hospital in the United States? That's that's certainly uh, uh, very troubling if if that's the case. Um, or is it is it an inherent genetic makeup? So someone who's you know lived in Asia, born in Asia, lived in Asia, um, and has never been exposed to, to to opioids like most of the population here, are they more susceptible to events compared to the population here? Um, and so those are some of the interesting side questions that we wish to answer with, with a trial like this. Yeah, those are all very interesting. So let's talk about uh, what you found. How common were these events? How, how common were events that were picked up uh, on the monitors for the patients who were being monitored continuously? <clears throat> so again, uh, trial results uh, have surprised us, but we found that nearly 46% of patients had a respiratory depressive episode as defined a priori in our protocol. So we defined a respiratory depressive episode as a respiratory rate less than 5, oxygen saturation less than 85, an end tidal CO2 less than 15 or more than 60, 
any of these for at least three continuous minutes, an apneic episode more than 30 seconds, or a, a predefined opioid-related adverse event. Now, the way this worked was when something like this happened, the monitored data would put a check mark on yes this may be a uh, this may be a, a episode as defined in the protocol then the monitoring data would go to a independent clinical event committee which was composed of three experts uh, who were perioperative respiratory depression ep- experts that would then look at the waveform data look at the history of opioid um, administration uh, around that data and those waveforms that were available and were marked and would then adjudicate and say, this is an opioid-induced respiratory depression. This is respiratory depression, but it's not likely to be opioid-induced. And this is all just artifact. So... What we had in the end was adjudicated events to the tune of 46%. Um, and the, but the, the other side to that coin is that clinically detected events were um, maybe just 10 or 20. Um, so I could count clinically detected events on my fingertips, whereas monitor detected episodes that were then verified by a clinical event committee were to the tune of 46%. This can mean one of two things. The biggest thing that bothers me is that because of our snapshots in time monitoring, we are missing a lot of potential disasters and, and or near misses, as I call them. Um, the other thing that bothers me is that if I was the patient and I had repetitive exposure to hypoxemic hypoventilatory events on the general care floor and and th- those were not being monitored when I was 80 years old and I had coronary artery disease how would that affect the my the ability of my myocardium to handle that stress would would the next right. would it be related to myocardial injury and or mortality later on I don't know that and and the, the other way of looking at this is, well, we have all of these events and all of these episodes and someone can say, well, they don't mean anything at all because um, only, you know, a handful of patients actually decompensated. I would be tempted not to brush it aside just like that um, because there is the <laughs> it's like saying. You don't see what you don't know and, and you don't care then. But we we do know that patients are decompensating. We do know that we have the ability to keep a close eye on them. So if we're not doing it, then then that, that is truly our problem. Um, right. So that's where we are in terms of yeah. basic results. Yeah, great. And so, you know, of that, well, let me ask, of that 46% that were adjudicated events, uh, what uh, how, what percentage of that were were, de- were deemed to be opioid-related uh, versus non-opioid-related? Oh, those are, so, so maybe I didn't explain myself clearly. Those were all adjudicated opioid-induced respiratory de- depression. 
Oh, those are all opioid induced. Yeah. Okay. So quite a lot. Yeah. So were there additional events that were deemed to be, yes, a, a respiratory event, but not opioid related? Yes, they were. And I okay. don't know those numbers off the top of my head, but there were certainly events like that. For example, patients who were septic, patients who had sure. a respir- primary respiratory problem or, and or were, you know, in, in car- cardiac failure or something like that. Right. So even a higher percent that actually had events and again right. would, would, were not, would not presumably be caught, uh, at least not necessarily if, if only being checked every four hours. Right. So, uh, do, is there a, um, uh, any any idea of within that 46% or even the higher number, if you include all the events, of, of how many did actually decompensate and require a, you know, a rapid response call or a transfer to a unit? So like I said, uh, few and far between. I, I would say a number closer to, to 20, um, but very few and far between who actually needed a escalation in care because of a true uh, decompensation that was detected clinically so that and and then the you know the the problem with that is again like i said because those 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 are the people who are being picked up based on snapshots in time monitoring so i i don't know what the uh, the the makeup of the large divergence in the the monitor detected events versus the clinical detection, and part of me is bothered that they we're not picking up some of these subtle signs. And part of me is also bothered because I, you know, we we don't have the ability to follow these patients, um, you know, long term. So, <clears throat> what are the long term consequences of being exposed to two days of hypoventilation, hypoxemia, and tachycardia? I don't know. Right. Um, I would love to do a long, long, long-term follow-up study as well to to see if if exposure to harm is just clinical events or is there other exposures as well that are involved here. Right. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. So, and I guess the idea is also if there's anybody uh, who is is decompensating, then that's a potential, uh, you know, even in the immediate period, something that we could intervene on and and someone that we could save. So. Uh, let's talk about uh, the risk prediction score that you developed. So what were the factors that uh, put someone at high risk? So our risk prediction score was uh, very user-friendly, as I call it. So we had five uh, variables that uh, or, or parameters that went into the score. First was age, more than 60, with every increasing decade of age more than 60, the risk went up significantly all the way up to uh, age greater than 80. Um, and this was overall the strongest predictor. Uh, in addition, we had uh, male sex, presence of sleep disordered breathing, uh, opioid naivety, and the presence of chronic heart failure. So all of these five went into the development of the Prodigy Risk Score all of them were given weightage based on the amount of risk associated with each. The score was scored from a minimum of zero to a maximum of 39 points. And then we divided it into um, a low, intermediate, and high-risk category, uh, low risk being less than 8, intermediate being 8 to 15, and anything more than 15 being a higher-risk higher category on the Prodigy score. And we noticed that at least in our patient population, there was significant intergroup separation. 
So for example, if you're on the highest priority risk score, you were at least six times as likely to experience a um, opioid-induced respiratory depressive episode uh, compared to um, someone on the lowest risk score. Wow. Okay. So pretty significant. Yep. Um, so, and then there were some other um, predictors that uh, were actually negative predictors, right? Tell me a little bit about that. It sounds like BMI greater than 35 and asthma, at least in the univariate analysis were found to be uh, negative predictors. Why Why is that? Yes, yeah, that's a great question, Jed. Um, I can at least um, talk about BMI. So there is some data that actually suggests that obesity, especially, you know, um, over, over a period of years and years and years, does have a protective uh, value to um, to how you handle opioids, so it it does presensitize, and then it it makes um, it it adds a layer of um, so folks who are obese they don't respond to to opioids in a, in a similar way as compared to the non-obese population. There also it also could have been that our obese population had been exposed to a lot of opioids in the past. And we did see that folks who were new to opioids were way more sensitive to getting an opioid-induced uh, event versus folks who, who, for example, were chronic opioid users. Um, so whether the use of chronic opioids can kind of went in hand in hand with obesity and that in itself led to a protective value at, at some stage, uh, it's hard for me to say. Um, like I said, some data other, does exist for the protective effect of obesity when it comes to cardiorespiratory events in and out of the ICU. Um, again, I would not read too much into it um, because as you well know, and I'd be happy, happy to uh, admit to that, uh, you know, these data sets have their own fallacies as well. And sometimes despite the best uh, set of univariate predictors, there is some sort of a driver that, that you or I can't see that is driving this prediction model one way or the other. Uh, and that's right, one reason right. why both obesity and asthma uh, disappeared from the the multivariate uh, model that we finally created. Right. Great. That's a good point. So, you know, you mentioned before, uh, it kind of in full disclosure, that this was an industry-funded study. Probably would have been difficult to do this this size and breadth of a study without significant funding. Is there anything that you kept in mind or tried to do as you put this together and conducted the trial to try to... Uh, you know, make the results as as untainted as possible, uh, despite the fact that it was uh, industry sponsored. So yeah, I mean, uh, this is a general thing for all industry sponsored trials. You have to be um, sure that you are still producing good science. Science, and I think the the one thing was that our uh, protocol steering committee was uh, uh, constructed the protocol independent of any uh, influence or input from the sponsor. Also, our clinical event committee or adjudication committee was independent of any uh, influence from the sponsor. And what 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 is being said really in the trial is the value of continuous monitoring to to design a risk prediction tool to help 
improve patient safety on the general care floor. Now, yes, Medtronic equipment was used in the trial, but again, you know, it could have been done with uh, other continuous monitoring equipment. It could certainly have been done with other continuous monitoring equipment as well. And um, and I would say that, you know, this is not a trial of the equipment. It is a trial of continuous monitoring. Um, so, you know, it's, it's in no way or shape biased to uh, equipment per se. It, it might be biased to the concept of continuous monitoring, though. Right. Yeah, I think that's really significant. Uh, unlike an industry-sponsored trial looking at the effect of a medication being produced by a pharmaceutical company where, you know, clearly the question is, does this drug work or not? And there's a very clear financial benefit from that specific drug, you know, being shown to be effective. Here, uh, there's a, a kind of a step there uh, in between where the question is, is it good to monitor people? It does not, as you said, have to be with Medtronic equipment. Um, and so I think that takes it a step uh, away from from that kind of direct um, uh, evidence of, of benefit for the company. So, you know, I think that says a lot, too. But it sounds like having some independent boards involved, as you did, can also uh, give some assurance of um, of independence. So I think that's great. Um, so, you know, I think the the final and ultimate question is, what, uh, you know, now that you've done this trial and you've developed this score, you know, what do you recommend for people out there who are in positions of deciding on policy and protocol for uh, taking care of patients postoperatively? Um, obviously, as you said, your dream and maybe the ultimate goal that we'll get to would be to have every patient continuously monitored with a small, portable, uh, relatively comfortable device. Uh, but until we get there, uh, what do you recommend? What would you like to see people do? Yeah, so uh, a great part of clinical research is trying to put it into operational practice, and that's that's a uh, difficult bridge to cross. Um, what I would recommend is that before we implement continuous monitoring on the general care floor, we make certain that we know the problems of continuous monitoring. The biggest problem, as you and I know, is alarm fatigue. Um, so if I put uh, all patients on the general care floor and continuous monitoring, I'll have a ton of false alarms. And basically, uh, there will be no responses to real or false alarms after a while. And we won't see a benefit. In fact, we might see more harm. So the first step has to be a system, uh, whether it is part of the afferent limb or whether it is at the back end, a, maybe an AI-driven system that can filter out a lot of the noise and come up with um, a system where at least to some degree of sensitivity and specificity, only the true sig- true signals to harm or the true alarms are captured and at least some of the false alarms are removed. Um, the second thing is that uh, there has to be the establishment of some kind of a remote monitoring unit uh, that that houses folks who can look at all these continuous monitoring signals come through for every patient and then have an efferent system where they can alert providers at the bedside. It is, it is impossible and inconceivable to tell my floor nurses to say you have 10 patients that you have today and all of them have continuous monitoring and I expect you to respond to every single alarm and then go check on them. Uh, that will not work at all. So um, artificial intelligence, clean out the noise, have a remote monitoring unit, have an independent set of providers, construct uh, an uh, an effective efferent limb, 
get your rapid response teams to be part of that efferent limb and the afferent limb so they can look at the continuous monitoring data also in real time if they have to. And then finally, and I'd like to bring up this point, uh, where we're struggling is we can put continuous monitoring, but then what are we doing with those numbers that are being generated? We need to make sure that when we're recording vital signs in the EMR, we need to record them more frequently. What's happening is that continuous monitoring is generating a set of unvalidated vital signs. And they're all going to a server and ultimately being thrown into uh, garbage cans, so to speak. But we need to capture all that data. If tomorrow an investigator like you or me wants to look at 10 years worth of continuous monitoring data that has been captured across several institutions in this country, then he or she needs to have access to that data, right? We cannot just have a set of validated vital signs that come in every once in an hour um, because that, again, defeats the purpose of continuous monitoring. My real vision is that once this thing is in place, 10, 15 years from now, people will start tapping into many hundreds and thousands of uh, patient years of continuous monitoring data and actually will come up with... uh, a more uh, robust prediction model one way or the other, but they need to have access to granular data. Right. That makes a ton of sense. Well, this is great. Uh, Ashish, anything that we didn't cover that you think uh, we should before we sign off? No, Jed, I think this was very uh, comprehensive and I hope this will excite more, uh, more discussion and more debate. And I'm happy to um, answer any questions or concerns or any other, you know, ideas anyone else has, um, I'm, I'm sure they can uh, fire off their questions to you. And if and, and if you want, if you want, you can send them over to me. I'd be happy to uh, answer them in detail afterwards. Absolutely, happy to do it. Uh, folks can leave comments uh, on the website, or uh, they know how to email me, and I will uh, be happy to get your input on them. So, thank you so much for coming on the show. I think this was great, and I really appreciate you taking the time. All right, Jed, have a great day. All right, that was really interesting stuff. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website acrac.com. See what you think. If you have a comment about this trial, about how you think we should be heading in terms of monitoring these patients, let us know. And if you leave a comment, everyone can learn from what you have to say. You can also, as Dr. Kana said, uh, leave questions for him there or send them to me, and uh, we'll get them over to him. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you're interested in supporting the making of the show, check out patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can, of course, also leave donations at paypal.me slash ACRAC if you prefer that. Thank you so much to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. And, of course, a big thank you to Brian Park for the outlines he's done for many of the shows. And a huge thank you to the man who composed our original ACRAC music. That's Dr. Dennis Quo. Check out his website at studymusicproject.com make sure to check out our new logo and website look at acrac.com and let us know what you think and of course if you have thoughts on how we can make it even better we're always open to hearing that all right that is it for today thank you so much for listening for the acrac podcast and dr ashish khanna 
I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Thank you.